I understand that there was a sad event that is taking place over the next several weeks. Mythbusters, the TV show, is coming to an end. They will no longer be producing new Mythbusters. And I can understand it after you've watched it several, you know, different times. It, it does begin to wear out a bit. But they've had some phenomenal shows in, in which they would take a myth that existed, an urban myth, and they would see whether or not this particular urban myth was true or false. Well, there was one that uh, I told John um, this morning would probably sadden his heart as a classic car lover that they did a few years ago. The myth was that somebody had passed away inside their car and had not been found for several months. And that because of the decay and because of the corruption that takes place, you know, biologically, that the car had an incredible odiferous nature to it. And no matter what they did, no matter how they tried, no matter how extensive they cleaned that car, they could never sell it. Because people would look at it from the outside and go, oh, it's lovely. And then they would sit inside and try to get out of the car as fast as possible. So Mythbusters decided they were going to see if that myth was true. And what they did was they took a pig, wrapped it in plastic, put it inside a Corvette, a fairly classic Corvette, took the Corvette, drove it into the trailer of a tractor trailer, closed the doors, and left it there for several months. And then came back. And you can imagine what it was like. They tried everything. They ripped out the carpets. They ripped out the seats. They ripped out everything mechanical. They ripped out the dashboard. They ripped out all of the filters. They cleaned it. They scrubbed it. They used enzymes. They used all they could to try to get the, the corruption, the, the, the odor out of the car. They put it all back together. And guess what? They could not sell the car. They finally ended, ended up letting this classic Corvette go for $2,000. Now, there's a message there in that illustration that is significant when we come to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19 is not a passage that I was just looking forward to preaching over the last several months as I was thinking through the life of Abraham. But it's one that's really important. And it matches well that urban myth about what happens when corruption gets within and the impact that that corruption can have and that it can never be removed. Now, Genesis chapter 19, you know the story. You know, you read the book or seen the movie. But that is the time when God comes to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and basically says, enough. The evil, the sin, the lack of justice, the unrighteousness, 
that dominates that city and the cities around them was so intense that it would no longer be affected even by the presence of a righteous man within. Even when two angels show up, there's still no impact on that town. And they had hit that place, and we, we know that kind of evil. We see it around us sometimes. When you think about an ISIS, when you think about, you know, some of the abuse that Pam was talking about this morning, when you think about, you know, the, the slavery trade that goes on, all those kinds of things, we get angry and we say, God, do something. Well, Sodom was so corrupt, so vile, that from top to bottom throughout the entire culture of that city. There was that kind of evil and that kind of corruption. And finally, God said, enough. But the problem with Sodom is not just that Sodom exists as a city on the outside. The theme of Genesis chapter 19 is also this that Sodom exists on the inside and that every single one of us here, everyone, struggles with Sodom on the inside. And the corruption of a decaying world, and by the way, the world is always decaying, making its way inside of us. Now, as you look at Genesis chapter 19, the theme becomes this. Evil is a danger both within and without that must be abolished. Now, God is long-suffering. And Peter reminds us that there will come a day when God will say, of the whole world, it is enough. But he waits. Because there is still an impact of the righteous. There is still an impact of those who would seek to do justice and seek to do righteousness and seek to have an impact on their world. That continues. And as long as that continues, God stays his hand. But when that comes to an end, God will say, enough. The problem is we also need to deal with the evil on the inside. And sometimes beyond that grand event when God will say enough of the whole world, sometimes very, very rarely, he will directly involve himself in the earthly affairs of a city or a nation and say, enough. Now, it is God who determines evil, and we looked at this last week. As we began to look at Genesis chapter 19, and you see the sin that is there, Jude, in in the book of Jude, in verse 7, reminds us that their sin was immorality. Their sin was sexual corruption. Yes, we understand that. But that's not the primary focus of Genesis 19. It's not this homosexual gang you know, violation that's about to take place or trying to take place. That's not the primary focus. The primary focus of Genesis 19 is a contrast between Abraham, who is a just and righteous man, and this corrupt city who is ultimately unjust 
ultimately unrighteous. So that when the visitors come to Abraham, they are protected, they are, they are fed, they are dealt with in righteous and just ways. But when those same visitors show up at Sodom, there is an attempt at a, at a gang attack. And the emphasis is, look at this contrast. Ezekiel tells us that it is the corruption not just of their actions. That's just the little bit of the iceberg above the water. Problem is the corruption of the heart of a people who had become totally, completely unrighteous and unjust. Now, as bad as the United States may get sometimes, can we please admit we're not there? Yes, we see difficulties and struggles. And in a moment, we're going to talk about the fact that we need to, t- to be standing against those things in, a, in appropriate ways. But God still has his people among this country, this culture. But God says, these are the things that are evil. These are the things that violate my character. These are the things that violate my design. But as we continue, that was last week, into the rest of Genesis 19, we understand this. It is also God who punishes evil. And there is an operative word there, an important word there, and that is punish. It is not my job as a believer to punish evil. It is not your job as a believer to punish evil. It is not our job as a church to punish evil. That's not why God created believers and the church. We are the light. Not the spanking paddle. But God has a way to deal with evil in the world. God has a way to punish it. And if you're a parent, you understand that there are different ways that we discipline our children. Sometimes we use natural consequences. Those are the consequences that just flow out of the decisions that are being made. You forgot your lunch money for the 10th time this month. Guess what? This time, I'm not running to the school. And you will, you know, need to deal with it. Or for the 10th time, you forgot to put your umbrella in the, whatever it is. And we say, okay, these are not dangerous consequences. They're uncomfortable consequences. But as a parent, I'm going to allow you to face some of that difficulty as a result of the natural consequences of the choices you just made. And then sometimes we have creative consequences. Yesterday, we had a Memorial Day picnic yesterday. We got the heat. Whoever has it tomorrow gets the rain. But we decided we were together, and and Brennan and Sarah had some of their friends over, and they wanted to know what are some of the ways Cindy and I used to discipline Brennan and Sebastian and Nicole. And they also wanted to know if Austin was just like Brennan, and we said, oh, yeah. But we were kind of creative in some of our, 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 our discipline, and some of them we just had to create some things. One of the things that just used to get to us is two things. One is sitting at the table and taking your teeth and rubbing them across the, the silverware as it comes out of your mouth. You know, oh, I just, that's so impolite. Some of you are saying, what's your problem? I'm sorry. 
And the other was, please don't burp at the table. Just don't do it. That is so impolite. Cover it. Well, every so often, one of the kids would do that. And we're not talking a major offense here. We're not talking about a major discipline. But we had to come up with some creative discipline. And so we had a playhouse in our backyard. And if you burped at the table, what you had to do was run outside, run up to the balcony of the playhouse, stand on the playhouse, and say, I was rude at the table. I burped. And then come on inside. For Nicole, it was embarrassing, and it prevented it. The boys thought it was great. But you have to come up with some form of discipline to say, I want to teach you this is wrong. Well, God does that too. There are those consequences to evil that are natural consequences that flow out of our choices. One of those choices was a guy named Adam and a woman named Eve, and they made some choices, and sin came into the world, and we've been watching the natural consequences of those all along. Some of them are the natural consequences of the choices we make. And as a result, sometimes we face difficulties that are a result of foolish choices. If you spend more than you make on a consistent basis, can we please admit there's a consequence to that? We're not going to get into political things this morning, just personally. There are consequences. 99.9% of the things that happen in the world are a result of natural consequences. Everything from a Hurricane Katrina that is the result of the weather patterns, and yes, God is sovereign, but God didn't say, oh, I'm aiming this one at New Orleans. Like I said, if God was trying to punish the sin in New Orleans, he missed because the French Quarter survived. all the way to that, to making foolish decisions about who we marry, the relationships that we share. There are consequences. Paul wrote it this way in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from that spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time God will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Listen, we live in a culture, and our culture is moving away from the way God designed things. There will be consequences. We're moving away from the whole concept of gender. God said there's men and there's women. And when we try to confuse those and we say, God, I don't like what you established, I'm going to violate that. By the way, that's the issue, not who gets to use what bathrooms. It's that we've taken what God has said and said, we don't like it and we're not doing it anymore. Is there going to be consequences? Sure. It's going to get stupid, folks. We've taken the issues of morality and we've said it doesn't exist anymore. And we are facing the consequences of that. We are taking the idea of truth and integrity and pushing it away and saying the end justifies the means. Whether it be personal, whether it be political. 
There will be consequences to that. God's not going to step in and say, all right, get up onto the, uh, the balcony and start yelling, I, you know, I was rude, I burped at the table. God doesn't have to. Those are built in, and that's what we see happening in our culture. But that's not Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19 is totally different. It's one of those phenomenally, extremely rare times when God directly involves himself in human affairs, and with his hand says, enough. I'm done. There is only evil and tumult of the cry that comes from the victims, and I've had enough. You see, there are divinely imposed consequences when God seeks to directly punish or destroy evil The evil had become so great, its corruption so overwhelming, that God said, I have to deal with it. That's what Genesis 18 is all about. When there's that interaction between Abraham and the three visitors, and Abraham says, for the sake of 50 righteous, will you spare the city? And God says, for 50. And so then Abraham says, for 45, and God says, for 45. Then he says, how about 35? And then God says, 35. And then we go down and down and down. But what ultimately gets there is God says, there is nothing of righteousness and justice left. I will remove my remnant. I will remove those few. Happened once before in Genesis chapter 6. And God says, enough. Now, God punishes evil. God seeks to control evil. God has his ways of saying enough. There is a consistent way, and that is that it is the job of God's agent. The punishment of evil is the job of God's agent of justice tasked with curtailing evil in our world. Do you know what that is? It's the government. Why do we have mandatory reporting? Do you know why? Because the government has the authority and the power, and the purpose of saying enough. God designed the world that government has that job. Now, as we move farther and farther away from a reflection of God in our culture, it will become less and less effective. But we're not the ones that punish. That's God's purpose through government, not the church. Paul said it this way, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. It is God that punishes the thief. It is God that punishes the child abuse. I mean, God through government. That's government's job. 
For he is, he is God's servant. Who is he? This authority. God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent, notice, of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, we may need to separate, but that's not punishment as a church or as a believer. That's consequences. That's to protect where we go in the future. Punishment is looking back and saying, you will pay for this. That's government's job and ultimately God's job, not ours. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. The church is not the punisher. That's where the medieval church got it wrong. The medieval church thought it was their job to punish. And God said, you have the wrong task. And think of the difficulty that caused. Remember this little thing called the Inquisition? Do you know it lasted up until the middle 1800s? That's not the job of the church. We are to represent Christ. We are to bring the message of redemption. Yes, we bring the standards of God's holiness before a people and say this is what God expects us to live to. And we are to work in people's lives, even those we find distasteful, to bring them to a point of being forgiven and redemption. Punishment is the government's job. And punishment is God's job. The punishment of evil is God's direct response when evil becomes completely dominant and destructive. Genesis chapter 6, when all that was in the hearts of men were an intent to evil, and God said, enough. In Genesis chapter 19, when an entire city Every man in that city, oldest to youngest, meaning every sense of authority that existed within that city, stood in support of this incredible corruption that was taking place. And God said, enough. Now, when you put that together, you come with, up with Genesis chapter 12. Genesis, Romans chapter 12, sorry. Romans chapter 12, where Paul writes this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's our task. That's the church's task. To find, yes, even those that are corrupt and seek a way to bring justice and righteousness and God's forgiveness and, and, and change and redemption into their lives. That's our job. For you see, we are not to take revenge, my friends. But let God do that. Because God has said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
And then here's the catchphrase. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with power? No. With revenge? No. How do we overcome evil as God's representatives? With good. There's a documentary. I spent a lot of time on the internet this week trying to find this. I could not find it. If some of you find it, let me know. It's a documentary about World War II. I saw it about, oh, I don't know, it must be 20 years ago. And in this particular documentary, the person who was leading the documentary is talking to a Weimar, a German soldier, not SS, not, you know, not the really corrupt ones, but just a, a common officer in the German army. German army. And the interviewer said to him, did you know what was going on? Did you know what Germany was doing to Jewish people and others? And the German officer said, yes, I, I, I did. There was one time when I was standing there and I saw the SS take a group of people, Jewish people, march them through the snow, naked, to their death. The interviewer said, how did you resist that? How did you stand against it? And the German officer talked about ways that he had resisted as a German officer to try to make sure that that wouldn't happen. But then the most amazing statement this guy made. He said, you know, if I had to do it again, and those Jews were marching by me, naked, if I had to do it again to resist that evil, I would strip down, take off every bit of clothing, join in that march, and identify them. And even if it meant going to my death, I would have done so. That blew me away. That was overcoming evil with good. The German officer said that would have had such an impact for me to have chosen to do such a thing that I think it might have changed the minds and the reactions and the responses of untold multitudes of people. That's the church. That's the righteous. We overcome evil with good. Now, that doesn't mean that if we're in a position of authority, if we're in the political system, that we can't use that to overcome. There are the Wilbur, Wilbur, the Wilbur forces and others who said enough, and I will use the system to fight against the system. Yes, there's a rightness in doing that. The purpose, the ultimate way that God calls the church to make a difference is not through power and not through politics. If God has given you that place, wonderful. Use it. God has you there for a purpose. But we can overcome evil with good and let God be the punisher. 
You know why? First, he's better at it. He's more creative than we could ever be. And secondly, he's always just. It never affects him. He never does it wrong or overboard because God is always righteous. God does destroy evil. But it is God's people who are to oppose evil and to protect its victims. And that's what you see here. God's people are called upon to oppose evil. God's word, Isaiah chapter 1. Robin talked about this a few weeks ago, where God comes to the nation and says, look, I've had it with your sacrifices. I've had it with your festivals. I've had it with your, what you call worship. Don't bring it to me. It's offensive. And why? Because of the corruption of their hearts. And so God says, this is what I want of my people. There's first of all, Righteousness, that I am in conformity to what God calls right. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from, from before me, before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. That's all here. And the two words you find over again in the prophets are this, righteousness and justice. Righteousness is my choice to be in conformity to God and what God says is right. Justice is living it out in my relationships with others and making sure that they are receiving justice. And so God says not only be right here, but also seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to those who are the innocent victims, the fatherless and the widows, plead their causes. That's what God's people do. You see it in Genesis 19. We are to take a stand against evil. Lot, in the midst of all of his corruption inside, and we'll look at that in just a moment, still takes a stand against evil. When all of these men are gathered around his house, look what Lot does. He goes right out and faces them and says, do not do this evil, for it will destroy us. That's not written. That's the implication. He takes a stand. Now, again, be careful. Christians can be so obnoxious. This is not self-righteousness. This isn't, you know, that ugly stuff you see on on Facebook and on the Internet and all that kind of stuff. This is just saying when there is a wrong, calling it wrong. And... We are to protect the victims of evil. Lot goes out and he says, don't do this. These men are under my protection. But here's the problem. He tries to resist the evil through evil. Remember what he does? He says, here, here are my two daughters. Take them instead. Talk about corruption. Beloved, we don't overcome evil with evil. 
Now, to understand that passage, we don't have time this morning, but the whole idea there is is Middle Eastern hospitality, the sense that anyone in my home is under my protection, is under my care. I have an unviable, an unbreakable commitment to protect them, to treat them well. That's what Sodom did not do. That's what Sodom is violating. And Lot is saying, I will do whatever is necessary, but he goes too far. And boy, don't we see that in the world? You know, the, the foolish person that really believes the way to deal with abortion is to go in and to shoot an abortion doctor. That's evil. That's government's job. We take a stand against, but we don't do evil. We protect the victims, but we don't do evil. We're to be wise. But you know why Lot went too far? Because the ultimate problem wasn't the lot on the outside. I mean, the Sodom on the outside. It was the Sodom on the inside. You see, God's people must be honest about the presence of evil within themselves. Lot is called a righteous man. Lot is called a man that is troubled by the evil that surrounds him. That's what Second Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, based on Lot's reactions to what is going on, Peter says he, he, God rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Lot was righteous, but he had allowed the corruption to invade the inside. Along with his righteousness and the stands that he takes, and again, we don't have time this morning, but go back and read Genesis chapter 19, and you can circle all the times where you see Lot's corruption. You see Lot's corruption. When the angels, when he offers his two daughters, you see Lot's corruption when he's told to go talk to his son-in-laws and his son-in-laws mock him. They think he's joking. You see Lot's corruption when the angel says, you got to leave the city and Lot's dawdling, you know, just kind of puttering around. And finally they have to grab him by the arm and say, let's get out of here. You see the corruption of Lot's family when, as they're fleeing, his wife turns to go back. And I don't think it just means she looked over her shoulder. The idea of the word there, she made the effort to return. And the debris, the, the, the cloud, the all that was taking place overcome her, overcame her. And you see it most in verses 30 to 38 of Genesis chapter 19. When Lot's daughters get him drunk in order that they might have sexual relationships and bear children. You see, Lot was a righteous man, but he was influenced by the evil that surrounded him. It corrupted his thinking, it corrupted his reactions. It diminished his impact. We are called upon not simply to stand against the Sodom that exists out there, 
but more so, the sodomy here. We live in a consumeristic culture that says bigger and bigger and better and better and more and more. God says, not materialism, but contentment. We live in a culture that says there are no sexual morals. I watch what I watch on TV. And there are things sometimes that I watch on TV that 20, 30 years ago, I would never have watched. And I wonder about the corruption in my own life. We live in a society that says power is the ultimate purpose. And we see the corruption of power for the sake of an outcome and no willingness to trust in God's morals and standards. And we see the corruption of a narcissistic, self-centered world invading everything we do. So that everywhere I go, I believe it's about me. Where God said, as my servant, everywhere you go, God says, it's about me, not you. And it invades us. Do you wonder why the world sometimes laughs at Christians? Because they don't see a difference. And I don't mean, you know, the weird stuff. You don't have to wear weird clothing with no buttons and all that. No. It's a difference in here. How you treat your neighbor. How you drive your car. How you deal with your coworkers. In a way that represents the righteousness and justice of God, not the corruption of the world. So we need to deal with the Sodom on the inside. Just five things real quick. First, admit the struggle. It's in me. The problem with the world is not them. It's me. The problem in my relationship with Cindy is not her. Not that there's a specific problem. Don't, you know, When we argue and fight, the problem isn't Cindy, it's me. The problem in my relationships, I'm to look at me. Our struggle is to say, you know, the problem here is my my hurt and you're wrong. God's word says the believer is to say, the problem here is to look first at my wrong and your hurt. Can we begin to be honest? We are so blooming self-centered. And if you're sitting there thinking, not me, please come and talk to me afterwards. Actually, send your kids or your husband or your parents in first. Then we'll talk. We oppose evil through revelation. Allow God's word to correct and direct me. James says it's like a mirror. I look in, and you know what? When I look in that mirror and I see dirt on my face and my hair and, you know, and all the rest and, and you know, the beard coming in in a yucky kind of way, 
the normal response is to look and say, oh, something needs to be changed. God's word reflects back the reality. How about some of these? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others as more important than yourself. Have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, that though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, to be used only for his own purpose, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. How about this one? Love one another as I have loved you. God's word begins to reflect back the truth. Now, that's also what grace is for. We know forgiveness. Observation, be aware of of and evaluate the messages received in the world. Can I say, I really, really dislike Little Mermaid. Do you know why? Do you know what the whole story of Little Mermaid is? Disobey your father. Stand against his authority. Do what is wrong. And in the end, your father will repent and be sorry and everything will be good. I'm sorry, Disney, but that's not child-friendly. How many of the movies we, we, we watch? Again, I know, don't go home and say, that's it, child. You will never watch Little Mermaid again. No, teach them. So many are like that, let alone the adult dramas that go on. Can we be honest? Be involved where we can invite others to examine us and speak truth to us. Now, I'm not talking about just coming to church. That's where it starts. But where do you have relationships in your life where somebody asks you the tough questions? Now, I know how we respond. How are you doing? Fine. Now, a place where you really say, you know what? I had a tough week this week. I was really discouraged, or I was really angered, or I was really tempted, or I was really whatever. Well, we can be honest with one another. Do you know the person who sees you the least clearly is you? Others see you well. Do you want to know if you're grumpy? Ask your kids. Ask your wife. Ask your grandkids. I told the story of um, Grant one time coming in and saying, yeah, Austin said sometimes you're grumpy. We need to look, we need to be in those places where others can be honest, and we need to be willing to hear it. Not to be defensive, not to attack them back. Why do we have small groups? Beloved, if you're not in small groups, you're not receiving the ministry of Grace Community Church. Small groups are the place where relationship begins and where those relationships can build to the point where you have that kind of interaction. Not all of them, but one or two people. We need community. And then finally, we need dependence. Seriously. Every day, as we're in God's Word, as we're having that private time with between us and the Lord, and we're spending that time before him to say, God, show me. Show me where I'm not in conformity to the image of your son. Show me where I've allowed Sodom to invade my life. 
Show me the consequences of the foolish decisions that you might drive me away from them and show me the wonder and blessing of obedience that you might draw me towards it. God, show me. Search my heart and know my wicked ways. Expose, bring to light that which is not in conformity to you, but is corrupted by the Sodom and Sodom. Genesis 19 is a difficult passage because God finally says, enough. And we struggle with that when he does so. But the bigger message of Sodom is this. He was a righteous man who had absolutely no impact on the people around him. Because the problem wasn't only the Sodom on the outside, but it was the Sodom on the inside. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us an example like that in Genesis chapter 19. Father, we are, we are quick to judge others. We are quick to cry out for your vengeance. And Father, we know that at sometimes you choose to destroy evil. But the real struggle is this, the Sodom that we struggle with within. Father, that struggle first begins to have its proper direction when we put our faith and trust in your Son as our Savior, when we begin that relationship with you, when we know that our sins are forgiven, that the judgment of of eternity is gone in our relationship with you. And that comes through faith. And as we do each Sunday, we invite any who are not certain of that salvation in their lives to speak to someone here. But Father, thank you also for those who know your son. And we ask that you would constantly expose the Sodom within our lives that we might become a greater image of the reflection of your Son. We ask it all in the name of your Son, Jesus.